0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Hamilton in the Trump era edition It's just depressing even to say it, isn't it? It's Wednesday, July 8th, 2020 On today's show, I May Destroy You is the latest must-see premium streamer It's on HBO and is written, co-directed, and stars Michaela Cole As a young East London creative struggling with the aftermath of a sexual assault, we'll be joined for that segment by Doreen St. Felix of The New Yorker. Julia will sit out and then... A gigantic legacy comes to the small screen. Hamilton, the mega musical event of our lifetime, it's now on Disney+. Plus. We watched and pondered how a relic of the Obama era holds up in darker times and how a musical holds up on TV. We're joined for that segment by Isaac Butler, a very good friend of this program. And finally, this week's comfort pick comes courtesy of The Dana, Twister, 1996 high-concept action blockbuster with a Spielberg pedigree. Stars Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt as tornado chasers. I did just say those words. Joining me today is, <laughs> joining me today is the Dana. You are the Dana. There's no other Dana, right? I mean, there's, there's someone out there named Bruce, right? But that person's not Springsteen, right? There's someone out there named Madonna, whose nickname is Madonna, but that's not. So you're the Dana. Dana Stevens, the film critic of uh, Slate.
1: Good morning and flying cows to you, Stephen. <laughs>
0: good morning and flying cows to you. And, of course, we're joined by Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the L.A. Times. Hey, Julia, how's it going? Hello, hello. I'm good. Happy to be here. Yeah, superb. Let's dive in.
2: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
3: It's my little escape.
2: Now Judy's the life of the party.
3: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>
0: I may destroy you as a British import comedy, though every word of that is pathetically reductive in my estimation. Even though I wrote them, its creator and stars, thirty-two-year-old Michaela Cole, she plays Arabella, a Twitter star who's been given a book contract that may or may not be starting to overwhelm her. She's a member both of the East London three-to-a-flat creative class, but also, as the series I think quite deftly depicts, of the pre-Brexit EU. She's part of a global and pan-European youth culture. It's very sexy in this show, who via iPhone and Ryanair live everywhere and nowhere at once, suddenly congregating, hooking up, moving fluidly in and around and between one another. But where there is joy, there is pain. The night she is meant to complete an important chunk of her manuscript, she goes out, parties hard, and her drink gets spiked. And as both we and she come to discover she has been sexually assaulted, the show also stars Waruche Opia, Marwan Zoti, and Papa Asiedu. Let's listen to a clip.
1: And just by way of setting up this clip so you know what's going on, this happens a few episodes into the series, and it's a moment when Arabella, the heroine played by Michaela Cole, is speaking to a therapist for the first time about her attack.
2: And the assault, you recall? The thing in my head. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't... Because now you're you're calling it something that I never... never said. Do you see anyone else?
4: In this memory?
2: No, you you can't call it a
4: memory. Okay, other than the man in the... In my head, it may not even be real because I'm the person that can actually see it and I'm not sure, so we should probably pay attention to that. Yes. Yeah, because we don't know. That's a very big thing to assume. I'm just saying that we should refrain from talking about things like that and
0: <laughs> so we should we should probably just be careful okay all right well we're uh, joined by Doreen St. Felix for the segment Doreen of course you're a staff writer for the New Yorker welcome uh welcome to the show thanks for coming on
4: yeah thank you for having me Steve
0: this is a tour de force performance by um, Michaela Cole on every level, the, the sheer charisma of it. But funnily enough, maybe it might overshadow the subtlety of the ear behind her writing. As you say in your great piece for The New Yorker, the dialogue feels overheard. I think that that in its own weird way is in one of certainly one of the dominant features of this is, the, is just the tonality of it is perfect. Anyway, talk a little bit about that overhearing.
4: Of course. So I think initially, viewers of the show will experience a whiplash, because you start off the pilot, and it kind of just feels like, almost like an East London version of Insecure. You know, as you said, there's this group of like, incredibly sexy, young, carefree, slightly chaotic black people living in this area in the city. And they're all kind of like, lazy rivering into these careers and then all of a sudden in the last couple of minutes in the pilot the tone which had been that fun kind of placid feel all of a sudden jerks the viewer into a feeling of um, disorientation and into a feeling of being unmoored by this television show and I think I actually interviewed Michaela yesterday and we talked about that and it has to do with her steadfast desire and maybe even devotion to translating the real life uncanny feeling of having that experience Um, and I think you know I've talked to many survivors who felt kind of overwhelmed by the recognition which is that when something traumatic happens to you of course you have this new reality that you have to adjust to but at the same time like you're still laughing you're still hanging out with your friends and I think Her ear as a writer to the multiple modalities that, you know, young black people in particular experience in the city, uh, it just feels kind of unprecedented, at least within the realm of television.
1: Yeah, Doreen, something that really struck me and you you talk about this in your piece and also I think mentioned it just now is that this is a comedy, right? It's a half an hour sitcom style format, even though it is about a traumatic experience that's slowly recovered over the course of the first few episodes. We kind of learn along with Arabella what happened to her on this night when she was given some kind of a roofie drug. And so at first it's only glimpses of it. So for the first couple of episodes, this is primarily a comedy really. And even after the trauma starts to emerge, They continue to laugh. We continue to laugh. There's even sex comedy. I mean, after, you know, the news about her assault starts to emerge and then we'll talk about this, but, you know, other forms of sexual assault and rape are happening to other characters or being remembered by them throughout the narrative. And against all of that background, there continues to be, this kind of joy. And as you say, the, you know, chaotic, freewheeling life of these young people continues to move forward, including sexually. And that also seems like something really unusual that the show's doing.
4: Right. And I think it's subtle, but Arabella's insistence on continuing to be a sexual person is incredibly important to the narrative. Um, because, I don't know, like I've just noticed, of course, even amongst people who would consider themselves to be the most sympathetic to survivors and to victims of sexual assault, that there's a little bit of discomfort around the fact that women sometimes don't necessarily ascribe to victimhood as, you know, we'd like to see it. There are some examples with characters having to wrestle with society telling them that they've experienced a trauma and their actual feelings about that trauma, which might be that they don't think it's traumatic at all, and I think that's kind of like a taboo thing to bring up right now, because of course, um, women and other people who are uh, have suffered abuse are loath to receive any kind of justice, but I think. What's so great about I May Destroy You is that it's not lecturing its viewer, it's not trying to teach its viewer that they should feel a certain way about these experiences. It's more um, exploring the psychology around, you know, the dissonance between what it feels like to be a woman who is consuming certain culture and rhetoric that tells you that you have to feel a certain way about an experience and your actual individual everyday experience of that.
0: I mean, one thing I'd love to convey to a listener of our show who hasn't seen it yet is the show is so funny. It's so sharp. Right. It's so full of life and lust. And it's got, it's, it's general tone is like, you want to be immersed in this world and you are immersed in this world. It's exciting to be around these people. It's tonality is affirmative, right? These people are, are young, alive, and want to be those things, right? And then there's a public language of justice that the show introduces but doesn't endorse necessarily. Like the way more powerful force within the context of the show is here's this young affirmative person on the cusp of making it who then is violated in this radical way. And part of what's stolen from her, of course, is like a you know, somewhat abstracted notion of human dignity and, and you know, and that public language absolutely applies, like it is a black, black and white language of violation and theft, like moral theft. At the same time, kind of what's also being stolen is much more amorphous and powerful. It's, it's like her ability to bring her lusty self-awareness to bear on the world around her, which is a magnificent thing to watch she doesn't want that narrative right like there's a way she doesn't want the memory right she in this in the clip that we listen to she disavows the memory in part I think because she sees that she'll have to accept this received language and should accept this received language and protocol of being a victim which is not her natural way of being in the world and and I guess this is just a long-winded way of saying the show is fun like if you're listening to our segment and haven't seen it you might not realize how unbelievably fun it is to be immersed in this world even though there's an utter seriousness to the subject.
4: Totally. I mean, initially when I received the screeners for I May Destroy You, I was slightly hesitant to begin it. And I think it's because, you know, there were unofficial log lines that were swirling around about it being a sexual assault drama or a consent drama. And I'm going to reference this essay that Sarah Nicole Prickett wrote in 2013. She's a phenomenal writer. And within it, she has this like line that says that rape stories are boring. And when you really think about it, there are these beats and this rhythm that you have to attend to when you're telling the story, because you have to tell the story in a way that will undermine other women's speech. And so I had that worry beginning the show that it was going to be, you know, preachy. And that's not the way that I think women, many women really relate to that kind of experience. And then just the jolt of realizing, I think, around episode two, that that's not what we were in store for um, was nothing like any viewing experience I've ever had before.
1: I have one amendment or one maybe bit of pushback to something that Steve said a minute ago, which is the idea that the show believes or wants us to believe that Arabella should accept that received narrative. And I think something the show does that's really brave is play with that, in part in the figure of her publishers, right? Her agent, her publishers, all the people that are swirling around this book draft that she's pretending to be done with and in fact is stuck in the middle of. I think some of us can identify. She gets kind of pushed by these publishing professionals, including the head of the publishing company, who's another black woman, to, you know, to exploit her rape, basically, when they learn right. about it, when she very forthrightly says to them in a story meeting, okay, I was raped and this is happening to me. You know, the publisher's eyes kind of light up. and She can't believe that she's got, you know, such a, a hot trend story. And there's, there's, I feel like there's also a questioning, of, uh, a critique of the received wisdom about sexual assault mm-hmm. in the show.
0: Yeah, Dana, no, point taken. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I said what I said advisedly. I guess I guess, I meant more what the social worker might encourage you to feel about the amount of psychic pain and, and organized social activity it's taken to create a public language around sexual assault so that women feel as though there's a sympathetic apparatus there awaiting them should they want to turn to it you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's the only should that I'm saying, that there, there ought to be a public language about sexual assault so that people who survive it do not feel orphaned, right?
1: Right. No, yeah. What we And what we hear her struggling with in that therapy scene that we heard the clip from, I think is something that, you know, I mean, I don't know what the show thinks, but I think that I think is part of what has to happen, right? And which I'm yeah, sure will happen over exactly. the course of the series as it unfolds, is that you know, she just has to accept the reality of what's happened to her. And she's so resistant to victimhood that you can tell that's going to take a long time.
0: Yes, precisely. Doreen, am I right in thinking that that there there has to be both a, like a deep affinity, but also not a pure identity between the creator of a show like this and the character that's, I mean, as with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, right? A clearly, deeply felt autobiographical fleabag bag. And yet, you know, it's not exactly her. It's still something created at a kind of aesthetic remove. And that's also part of what makes it great. I have to imagine you've interviewed Michaela, you know, Cole. I imagine that that's part of the tension that made this thing so so unique.
4: Absolutely. And I think... Um, I think there can be a way that when we're talking about autofictions created by women that we undermine, as you say, the level of aesthetic labor that's put into building both the social world and, of course, the characters that populate it. Um, Of course, you know, knowing about Michaela Cole's own experience of having her drink spiked and uh, being subsequently assaulted, which she has so graciously spoken about in the public, obviously there are... There seems to be a kinship between Arabella and Michaela as not only women who have experienced this very awful kind of violation, but also women who are trying to work through that violation to make something, to make a work of art. And in our interview, it was so funny, Michaela often described the act of writing and then producing and then filming the show as a kind of labor. Um, and she still is in this process of labor, which is to say that, um, when viewers finally finish, I may destroy you. There's this feeling of, uh, a kind of like unending closure. Um, of course I don't want to spoil the finale, but it does something iterative that I think is just the perfect manifestation of of the thesis of the show, which is to say that, like, this never ends, right? And even though the form of television requires that we have a finale, it requires that we leave the stage, um, Michaela has found a way to kind of hack that structure to keep us thinking well beyond the confines of the finale. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, the show is I May Destroy You. It's on HBO. It's just absolutely fantastic. Doreen St. Felix of The New Yorker, thank you so much for coming on our podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. All
0: right. Before we go any further, now is the moment in our podcast. We usually talk about business. Dana Stevens, the Dana Stevens, what do you have?
1: Yes, Stephen, it's time to do the business. Time to make the donuts. First, we wanted to remind you that we still eventually do plan to talk about the book The Great Influenza by John Barry. This is a book about the 1918 flu pandemic, and we thought that reading it might help us situate ourselves in our own historical pandemic moment. We're going to talk about it in a future episode this summer. We haven't yet specified which episode because it's a long tome. It's around 500 pages, and we're not sure when we'll all be done. But we will certainly give you fair warning in advance. So if you want to pick up a copy of The Great Influenza by John Barry and read along, you can join us in that segment later this summer. Also, for Slate Plus today, we are going to be talking about Hamilton, which we were also doing in a main segment, but we had such a big and rich and sprawling conversation with our beloved guest, Isaac Butler, that we're going to put some of the extras in a plus segment, including spoilers about the end of Hamilton, which if you had not seen the stage show yet, but were familiar with the cast album, you might not know about. Um, So that will be our Slate Plus segment. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. We've been talking lately on the show about how the current health crisis has caused a reduction in spending at Slate, including pay cuts, uh, cutting this show and others to weekly rather than weekly, and other things that, you know, we would really rather not have to do, but it's a hard time for journalism. So if you want to support Slate podcasts, including ours, and all the great journalism that Slate does, you can sign up for a membership at slate.com cultureplus culture plus, you will get ad free podcasts, exclusive plus only content and many other benefits when you sign up at Slate slate.com slash All right, Steve, what's next?
0: Hamilton moved to Broadway from the public theater about five years ago. I read online, I'm guessing it was about six years ago, that the always weirdly prescient Jody Rosen told us this was going to be the most important work of popular art of the new century. I, it sort of looks like he was right. Hamilton, it's the brainchild of Lin-Manuel Miranda, who'd already made the respected in the heights this was his follow-up a rap musical about the least familiar of the founding fathers it became a hit then a phenomenon then a kind of cargo cult i mean just sort of category busting success uh, in musical theater and in some ways, the perfect distillation of the Obama years by reminding us that venerable men and periwigs were actually lusty and ambitious young men once. That's what made them great. And then also by taking hip-hop and turning it into a safely mainstream art form, throwing it up on a Broadway stage. It's expressing a hope, I think, these two things together, that everything violently contrary in our society might be brought together and resolved, can somehow retain its primal energies while being a source of common identity. Well, that was then this is now. What What is it like to experience this totem to national magnanimity in far uglier times? It's now on Disney Plus. Let's listen to a clip. Well, if it isn't Aaron Burr,
1: Sir.
2: I didn't think that you would make it. To be sure.
1: Burr. I came to say congratulations. A verse, Burr. I see the whole gang is here. You are the worst, Burr.
0: Ignore them. Congrats to you, Lieutenant Colonel. I wish I had your command instead of manning George's journal.
4: No, you don't. Yes, I do. Now be sensible. From what I hear, you've made yourself
3: indispensable. Well. Wow. Well, I heard you got a special someone on this side, Bert. Is that so? <laughs> what are you trying to hide, but? I should go. No,
4: these guys should go. Ah, Leave us oh, alone, man. It's all right, Bert. I wish you'd brought this girl with you tonight. You're very kind, but I'm afraid it's unlawful, sir. What do you mean? She's married. I see. She's married to a British officer.
5: Oh, shit.
4: Congrats again, Alexander.
3: Smile more. <laughs> see you on the other side of the war.
2: I will never understand. If you love this woman, go get her. What are you waiting for? See you on the other side of the world. will see you
0: on the other side of the war. All right. Well, to discuss Hamilton on TV, we're joined by Isaac Butler. He is the co author with Dan Koyce of The World Only Spins Forward The Ascent of Angels in America. Uh, he's currently working on a book I'm super excited to read and talk about with him when it comes out The Method, A History of Method Acting, Stanislavski for Bloomsbury. Uh, Isaac, welcome back to the show.
2: It is so wonderful to be back on the Gab Fest.
0: Yeah, it says right here, I mean, I'm only reading, it says that you're a BFOP now, a beloved friend of the program.
2: Oh, well, great. I'm glad that I uh, handed in enough box tops to upgrade my (laughs) FOP status. (laughs)
0: Yes, quite easily. Um, Listen, you're a theater guy, you're a theater director. What is it like to take something that spectacularly big and sort of space filling on a stage and put it on my flat screen TV? How did that work with this play?
2: Well, I saw the production with the original cast, so I've seen something like what we saw on the screen. Tommy Kale, the director of the musical, also oversaw the its transfer, I guess, into the cinematic format with uh, they taped um, two performances, I believe, from a number of different angles and then also taped some stuff without an audience present with a cameraman, you know, on stage filming specific moments um one example of this is right at the beginning when lim manuel miranda sings his first line when he's revealed they have clearly cut into a cameraman on the stage and no audience present because that moment actually stops the show for about a full minute of applause um and so there is an attempt to both give you a sense of the show's liveness and also make it not feel static like you're just watching an archival camera you know pointed directly at the stage and while I think it's probably a little over edited for the most part i thought it was quite successful in doing that
0: Mm, and uh so we should say david diggs returns as jefferson and lafayette leslie odom is aaron burr jonathan groff is just, 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 just he's just delicious beyond delicious as king
2: george and you know another thing that's really uh became very clear when i watched it on tv about that actually is you know this is a show that is filled with giant showcase performances of true genius level talents. And if you watch it, uh, or maybe it's just because I was watching it for the second time, you see how much of the show is about announcing an incredible performance and then revealing the person who's going to give the incredible performance in a way that really hypes you up um, you know yeah. the before the king enters there's that huge there's a message from the king a message from the king and then he has this long entrance probably the best example of this though is the reveal of David Diggs in the song Guns and Ships where they where it's all about how Lafayette is turning the tide of the war and the and the chorus has actually surrounded Diggs so you can't see him and they move out of the way and he jumps up on the table and starts doing this kind of Andre 3000 style speed rapping about the Revolutionary War in a thick French accent. And it is impossible when that moment happens not to lose your goddamn mind. And you can hear the audience lose their goddamn mind. And it's just impossible, you know, even seeing it on your couch or whatever, which is how I watched it, not to be like, this is an incredible moment. But it's filled with those kinds of moments, uh, I think, in some ways, because the show is almost certainly over its many years of development and, and being workshopped, really written to the strengths of each of those individual yeah. performers. Yeah.
3: All
1: right. So as the film critic talking about the play that's been made into something like a movie, but is kind of still a filmed play, I'm just curious what both of you think about the idea of seeing this without having seen the show. I mean, we're all in the lucky position of, you know, having been able to see this show on Broadway. In the case of, you know, of you, Steve, we saw it. I don't know if we saw it together, but we talked about it on the show together and got to interview some of the stars. And so I feel like, I'm already coming in. And of course, I've been listening to the soundtrack with my theater mad daughter for years. Um, so I'm already coming into it primed to like any experience of Hamilton that's given back to me. But what if you were someone who either knew nothing about the show or actually resisted it, right? As many non-musical liking folks do, there's a, there's a strong wave of Hamilton backlash, often from people who haven't seen the show at all and don't have any interest in seeing it. What if you just saw this as a movie and it was your first exposure to the show? What, what do you think your impression of it would be then?
2: Well, I, I should say that there's also the other population of people who are huge fans of the show or big fans of the original Broadway cast recording uh, who either weren't able to see it or weren't able to see it with the original cast. Because, of course, it was an incredibly hot ticket. You know, tickets sometimes cost over a thousand dollars on the uh, secondary resale market. Uh, And Broadway in general is really expensive. So there is one part of this effort that is kind of I don't want to say it's democratizing because lots of people are making tons of money off of it. But there is something about that is bringing the show to the people. But on the other hand, for people who have never experienced Hamilton in any form, I mean, there is a fundamental goofiness to theater when it's caught on camera that you know, there's, there's a limit to how cool you can make a hip-hop musical about the Founding Fathers. And I think Hamilton on stage approached that limit, you know, uh, 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 pretty well. But there's an added goofiness, of course, to the exuberance of a live performance that has to fill a huge Broadway house being captured in close-up. That said, actually, I saw all sorts of details and nuances in those performances that I had not caught when I saw it live. And so I do think there's a sort of, trade-off there are some details you get and then but there is a thing about the live presence of these people doing this amazing thing in front of you that is uh, uh, not you can't recreate that on camera
5: yeah I had the same experience I mean I think there's some people for whom this will never be their bag and that's fine like no piece of art has to be for everybody and this piece of art is for like pretty freaking close to it so you know the fact that there have been some critical responses seems par for the course but I found myself so swept along by just the craft of the thing and it was interesting just the cleverness and the you know all the refrains that come back in such a compact way that's like an episode of Seinfeld where the joke from minute four comes back at minutes 13 22 and 27 and just the little flashes of recognition you get there um but I was most struck by that um with the death of Hamilton's son and in the song It's Quiet Uptown, which left me sobbing, like not just teary in the theater. I was like bawling on my couch watching this, you know, just on like an iPad on my lap. Like I didn't even put it up on the big screen. Somehow the intimacy of their acting at that moment, I mean, it's a beautiful song anyway, and maybe it's just that any song about death hits a little different um, at this particular moment. In American and world history, when death is a little, feels a little closer to everybody, but i I just wept and wept and and found it to be as powerful an object as ever it was. And I guess one thing I would ask you about Isaac is the difference between capturing a staged performance of a musical and you know it sounds like they took some pains to do it with a little bit more. Movement and innovation than maybe just like setting up a camera in the middle aisle and being like, here's what happened on the stage versus like, you know, making a movie musical of Oklahoma or whatever, you know, where you where you just treat it like a fully realized existence where people start singing. Like, do you think we'll see another filmed version of Hamilton where they're not all on that one proscenium? And what are the differences and kind of cost benefits of that version of filming a a famous beloved musical versus the here's what happened on the stage at the moment?
2: Well, it's much cheaper to film a live musical than it is to do an original film adaptation of a musical for sure. Um, But I think, it, it, you know, Hamilton is joining a small company of shows that have recently sort of gotten this treatment. Um, Spike Lee filmed passing strange a few years ago, which was eventually broadcast on HBO and, and Tommy Kail, who I think has said in interviews that he kind of studied that filming to get some ideas for how to go about doing Hamilton. Uh, Spike Lee did it again with the play Passover, um, you know, uh, PBS has for a long time broadcast these kind of live tapings of shows. They did one uh, most recently with Kenny Leon's. Shakespeare in the Park production of Much Ado About Nothing. Um, but that said, actually, there there are a lot of, just on a practical industry level, incredibly complicated union contracts that make this very difficult to do. PBS is able to do it at a pretty low price point because it's PBS and because they agree to a limited broadcast window. Um, and often it's only broadcast in specific regions. There's all sorts of things that happen in the contractual process. Um, And then the other reason why this is rare is there's always the fear that you're going to cannibalize your box office. For a live stage show, Passing Strange was shot during its final week. It had closed. uh, And I think with Hamilton, there was some sense that by the time it aired in 2021, it would still be an unstoppable cultural BMF all over the world. And so it would be okay. Whatever that hit was that they projected wouldn't be that big a deal. Um, And that is actually different from doing a a full cinematic adaptation, which is its own completely separate interpretation. You know, I don't think, as far as I know, the film of Chicago negatively affected the live musical of Chicago's bottom line, for example. Although I don't have any of those numbers in front of me. That's that's my feeling about having read about it at the time. Um so I do think it's a it's a complicated thing. I would love, personally, to see more of these kinds of treatments. Although I I am sort of curious what our resident uh, film critic uh, thinks about this just as its own kind of aesthetic object.
1: Yeah, I was wondering what seeing this in a theater would be like as opposed to seeing it at home. I mean, it's like a thought experiment, the same way it's a thought experiment to try to ask what if you didn't know Hamilton and you just saw this cold. And to me, part of the pleasure of seeing it is that it's theatrical. I mean, is that it's it's, it's it's in the wrong place. So there's this sense of getting a peek behind the scenes. I mean, if, if you've seen this show on stage, and then you see this taped version of it, you see lots and lots of things that you wouldn't see on stage, whether it's the details of someone's expression, or, you know, the spit on the lips of Jonathan Groff as King George that everyone's talking about. You see their head mics as they're walking around. And To me, it's that same thrill that you get, you know, on those rare occasions where you get to sit really close to the stage. Uh, It's great to sit as close as possible and sort of have that illusion be broken to me. I'm able to experience the show at the same time as, you know, as Julia said, an affecting drama that you're emotionally involved in, but also as this technical wonder, you know, that all these people are gathered on stage performing it for you at the same time. I mean, another thing that the the cameras enable here is angles that you wouldn't be able to see on stage. And I can't remember which entrance or exit it is, but I have a note about this, that Chris Jackson, who plays George Washington at a certain moment is walking off stage and you see his face, you see what would, of course, be only the back of his head Were you sitting in the audience and, you know, see the expression on Washington's face at that moment. So just the idea that the acting is happening from every angle. But, you know, when you're in a proscenium stage setting, you only see it from from one angle. Yeah, I mean, I you could say this is completely uncinematic, but to me, it's that discord between a live show and and a film that makes it fascinating.
2: Yeah, if anything I actually think from a directorial standpoint, the weakest moment in it as an adaptation is the the song where they try to do the most kind of cinematic uh, editing and camera movements, which is in the room where it happened, where the camera is constantly intruding on the action to take us into little micro conversations all over the stage. And in that moment, I was just like, you, you don't need to do this. The song in, is already doing the work. You could actually just get that camera off the stage and use the cameras that you've had before. And it would actually be a lot clearer to me as the viewer what was going on. Um, so if anything, I actually wanted to push pushed further in that direction, I felt.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's some over editing at times, and there's moments where you 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 hear the audience laughing, and you don't quite know what they're laughing at because you don't see that part of the stage, right? I mean, it's a really busy show. In addition to the large ensemble, there's there's all these um, dancers constantly on stage, and right. it would be nice to see a little bit more of that.
0: Okay, well, as befits a cultural phenomenon of this size and ambition, we've kind of chopped the conversation in two pieces in the in the second part of it will continue in Slate Plus. So Isaac, you'll stick around and talk uh, talk with us in Slate Plus?
2: Yes, looking forward to it.
0: All right, wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on the
2: show. As always, just a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 18 plus.
0: Twister is a classic summer blockbuster from the high concept era. It stars Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton as exes who come together for one last storm chase. Their specialty is tracking following, anatomizing tornadoes in the midst of an especially severe outbreak there on the heels of a grow- growling omnivorous vortex known as an F5, the so-called finger of God. It sweeps up everything in its path. This movie swept up everything in its path almost. I think it was the second biggest grocer of 1996. It made a half a billion dollars in 96 dollars. It was directed by John de Bont, Jan de Bont. It also stars Jamie Gertz, Carrie Elwes, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Let's listen to a clip. Oh.
3: Cow. I gotta go, Julia. We got cows.
4: Oh. Another cow.
2: Actually, I think that was the same one. Same oh. And we got Roger's here. We got no path. This
5: is not good. Get
4: us out of here.
0: <laughs> that is the perfect clip for this movie, Dana. You finally hit on a comfort movie that's actually comforting. I have, a ther- <laughs> I have a theory as to why. I mean, the absence of a psychotic killer I think was was helpful. But uh, unless you want to count the tor- tornadoes themselves, the
1: F five, but... Stephen, the F five at the end <laughs> is the psycho killer.
0: Oh uh, yes, your darkness prevails as always, Dana. Um, tell me why you find this movie comforting.
1: I mean, what can I say? This is this is this is great American cinema at its at its finest. It, you're you're absolutely right that it is the summer movie to end all summer movies. I forgot that there's a drive in sequence, a moment when a, a tornado hits a drive in that's playing the shining and you get to see the screen be torn apart. I mean, what could be more summary than that? What, one thing that struck me on this rewatch, Julia, was that this reminded me of one of your comfort movie picks from early on in our comfort movie cycle, which is sneakers. This movie had a lot in common with sneakers. Oh, really? Right? They're both mid-90s, sort of, you know, mid-budget Well, I guess you could call them thrillers of a sort, but mainly they're both about this core group of nerds that kind of speak this language that you have to learn over the course of the movie, right? Dropping all their jargon about tornadoes and that embark on these adventures with this great spirit of camaraderie. And somehow, even though the world it establishes, which is essentially, we'll get into the other characters, but... Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton, as Stephen said, are this divorced couple of storm chasers, right? And when they were together, we learned from, you know, the, over the course of the movie, they spent their time tempestuously arguing in cars as they chased tornadoes down roads in Oklahoma and apparently other parts of the American heartland. And they were followed by this pack of, I think there's eight of them, of these weather nerds who are played by such wonderful actors as Philip Seymour Hoffman, Alan Ruck is one of them, Todd Field, who you might not recognize the name, but he's a great face of indie movies of the 90s. Everybody, you know, driving in their own beat-up, rigged-up beat vehicle trying to um, to figure out how to get ahead of these storms. And even though this world is you know, seems completely unbelievable. And I'm pretty sure that any actual meteorologists or tornado, tornado experts watching it would have plenty of notes. Uh, there's something so textured about that world that you you almost immediately are plunged into. Within the first 10 minutes of this movie, you see your first tornado, or maybe even less. And uh, within the first 20 minutes, you've got all these people introduced and, you know, chasing tornadoes down highways, which is essentially what happens for the rest of the movie. But while it's happening, the couple's falling back in love... Uh, Jamie Gertz, who we haven't talked about, who is the new um, bride-to-be of Bill Paxton, is discovering a whole side to her fiancé that she didn't know about, which is the you know the storm chaser, come back to life. And all of these relationships in the background are kind of adjusting and, and changing as well. So, like Speed, which was the director John DeBont's first movie, this is his only his second movie as a director. He had been a cinematographer before. But like Speed, this is basically about people falling in love while driving very fast. <laughs> <laughs> and (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's just something that he is perfectly attuned to as a director. So even though in some ways this is big, dumb American cinema, I think it's basically as good as big, dumb American cinema gets. I had not thought about the parallels to sneakers, but they're
5: completely there. It's like band of nerd weirdos, each with a charming quirk. I love that Alan Ruck's whole character is good at maps. And he's constantly (laughs) like, you know, it's like pre-GPS They've got, like, these, you know, kind of, I think they're communicating mostly on, like, ham radios. It's pre-cell phone. And he'll constantly be like, drive off into that field on that weird farm road based on my understanding of, like, this map I have a folding system for. (laughs) It's a great superpower. Um, And it's interesting to think about the moment of the early 90s as this sort of, like, valorizing the moral fiber of nerds, you know? Like, the, the conceit, we should say, is that it's set up possibly falsely at the beginning of the movie that our understanding of tornadoes has not advanced in decades. Um, and what they want to do is like put a bunch of sensors in a tornado to, which will help them better understand and predict the paths of tornadoes. So people won't have to die. Um, as I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say Helen Hunt's father tragically does in the beginning of the movie. Um, when she's a child, uh, and the camaraderie of it is great, but I just loved like the elegance of the setup and the compression of the setup and how they just introduce us to all these people with such elegant shorthand. I also just loved, you know, Helen is the ultimate nerd here, Helen Hunt's character, Joe, and um, and I liked that about it that she was sort of a central nerd and her kind of hard edges and passion for the science and her bruised romantic feelings for Bill Paxton and the way in which she, you know, internalizes them in her little tank top and her 90s cargo pants uh, and sort of can't really express herself. But you can see it all in her great jaw and her steely eyes. It's just a great performance. I, I, I haven't, I, I'm trying to think, I never watched as good as it gets. Like I haven't seen a ton of big screen Helen Hunt and I just loved her in this. I
0: need to remind everyone present that this movie has a 57% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> what? It's not it's not a good movie, right? What? Like now I think it's a kind of a, it's a great comfort movie and I have a theory as to how it can be both so silly, so bad and so greatly comforting especially in the year 2020. It's, so it's a style of kind of portentous escapism made great by Steven Spielberg. It's, it's got a Spielberg genealogy. He's an executive producer and his thumbprint is all over it. I mean, it's, it's set pieces are wonderfully, com- very competently directed with, with gestures towards the wonderful, like extraordinary set pieces of, of golden era Spielberg from the seventies. Um And it's, movie comes out in 96 when this style of filmmaking has been turned into a total money machine. It, this is a relic from the ridiculous era of high-concept fi- filmmaking whereby you can watch a movie like this and immediately reverse-engineer to the pitch meeting you know, where you essentially give one line. It's like speed with a tornado or something or whatever, that old cliche, but it really was how movies got into the pipeline and eventually made. You can hear the marketing meetings, the release strategy, Um, but that's what's comforting about it. It's so generated by the genre itself. You know, this was back before, this was an era of gigantic budget, special effects filmmaking, but before IP, intellectual property, took over the business model, because it wasn't, you know, it, 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 you didn't, weren't competing with streaming TV yet. And so people on a hot summer night automatically went out to go see whatever the big weekend movie was. And the, and the hook was always the concept and the stars, right? It's just a great time capsule from that era of blockbuster filmmaking. It's just so fucking hokey, but that's what is also what makes it great. It has like a roadhouse-like quality to it. These inane but indelible lines throughout it. Dustman's been with us since we started chasing. Sky's really <laughs> talking today. The suck zone. And then my favorite days of sniffing the dirt are over. I mean, it's just the whole thing is just so fucking asinine and like gloriously asinine. And it's just... The other thing I love about it too is they were like... You know, it's a lot of work to have one character actor whose character you actually have to build up and write. Why don't we just get seven of them and throw (laughs) them in two pickup trucks, and then we don't have to write. Or fill out any of them. So they were like, I know. How about Philip Seymour Hoffman? No. How about Joey Slotnick? What about Alan Rock? What about Sean Whalen? What about Scott Thompson? Wait, wait, wait. What about Jeremy Davies? I know. Let's get them all. They are all in this movie. And I swear to God, you probably only recognized one or two of those names. You will recognize every single one of those five, six, seven faces in this movie. And it's like, there's a new one every scene. You're like, I didn't know he was in this movie. But there he is in the fucking pickup. And it's, it's just... I just kept wondering, how has this not become a midnight movie or a drinking game movie? I mean, it's just deliciously preposterous, like deliciously preposterous movies with a hundred million dollars behind them don't get made anymore. And I just find that thought so incredibly comforting that they once made them, not that they don't make them anymore.
1: I mean, first of all, I think this is to some degree a midnight movie. I don't know if it actually gets shown at theaters, theatrical screenings at midnight, but I am sure that there must be groups of people who gather on a regular basis to to quote dialogue from this movie at it, right? I mean, there isn't a movie that I can think of from this mid-90s period that lends itself so well to the to the quotable quotes syndrome. And Steve, if I may just say that one of the co-writers of the script of this movie that you say is so horribly written no, is Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton, the master of pop spectacle, and uh, I feel like it's actually quite tightly written. I mean, these characters yes, are introduced really quickly and yes, they're not we don't get big background for anyone except for the Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton characters to some extent. But I think every single one of those storm chasing nerds in the the pack of nerds emerges sort of in the way that the sneakers' secondary characters do. As someone with, as Julia says, a trait, right? My trait is that I can read maps. Well, my trait is that... I don't even know exactly what Philip Seymour Hoffman's mm -hmm. character's trait is. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But by mere virtue of being Philip Seymour Hoffman, he creates this incredible character. So his joy, his absolute joy in chasing tornadoes and in the people that he's chasing the tornadoes with is so palpable. And I think I've mentioned this before, maybe when we set this movie up, but it's the first movie I ever saw him in. And I I remember just walking out saying, who is that blonde guy? I've got to know more about him. And sure enough, we learned a lot more about him in the decades after.
5: Yeah, I agree with you, Steve. Like, watching this movie and a couple others for these rewatches, I've just been like, the 90s were a glory day for cinema, which is, you know, I think when people say things like that, they think about, like, Sundance and Pulp Fiction and, the you know, whatever. And I mean it differently. It's like just the palpable nostalgia for the different forces that caused a blockbuster to come into being. Like you can just feel how different it was. I mean it's almost like we have to put the sensors in the sky, to sense a disturbance in the weather. And why is it that this is the thing that's coming at us? Like right. It's just a different, completely different genesis. This movie would not be made now or I don't know if it were it would be about like a tornado superhero or something. The other thing that's striking about it is, you know, it's a little bit like Jurassic Park, like watching something very high tech where the tech is old and just the flotsam flying past in in every shot. Like there's never not just like a shingle or a cardboard box or something just like whipping past them like it would be interesting to go back through the movie and just track moments where shit is flying through the air versus moments where nothing is and i think it's about 50 50
1: (laughs) yeah usually it's more like a tractor than a cardboard box (laughs) and somehow
5: they're only charming i i will i won't hear a word against this i won't hear a word about it's rotten tomatoes steve um but i agree with your sense that it's like marveling at the alien creature from a completely different moment in hollywood
1: do you know who was initially floated for these two leads, besides uh, the Hunt-Paxton pairing that has become so indelible?
0: Ooh, so 96.
5: Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum?
1: Laura Dern is correct. Uh, but there's another very Spielbergian actor.
5: Another lady with a gray jaw.
1: Totally. Um, I, can, I can see her in that role, though it would have been a different movie. It's Laura Dern and Tom Hanks.
5: Oh, oh Tom Hanks. I've never said this before and won't say it since, but Tom Hanks is no Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton
1: is so perfect for this. (laughs) Oh, Bill Paxton, God rest his soul. Oh, God, and Carrie Elwes. He's in it for the money, not the science, people.
3: <laughs> like, what does that even mean? He's, what is what the is corporate, the money? The quote, Storm the Chaser, Juliet. I know,
5: but like, I'd love to think about that for half a second. What is the money attached to storm chasing if it is not the science? Like, where would you get the money if you didn't actually solve the science? Like, it, it makes no sense.
0: I love it. All right. Well, it's Twister. It's from 1996. It is right there on Amazon Prime for the taking. Uh, curious to know if it has any. Partisans in our in our uh, listenership.
5: Before we move on to our next segment, though, we need Steve to pick our next movie. Steve, what have
0: we got? Ooh, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw us back in time enough enough cheese balls from the '90s. Let's let's go back to 1936 and watch what I regard as well. It's my favorite. Let's put it that way. Hollywood comedy of all time. My Man Godfrey stars William Powell and Carol Lombard. Absolutely transcendent performance by Carol Lombard. It uh, I just think it's one of the uh, tr- truly great screwballs, truly great movies ever made. Uh, couldn't love it more. And the comfort I derive from it is uh, unlimited, really. All right. Let's move on.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners. Whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: All right. Now's the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
1: Stephen, I'm afraid that I might be re-endorsing something I've already endorsed, but it's new again, just as Hamilton is. This is a Hamilton-related endorsement, and it is the Ron Chernow biography that inspired the show when Lynn manuel Miranda read it on his honeymoon, apparently, uh, read specifically as an audiobook by Scott Brick. I think I've already ranted about this before and endorsements gone by. Maybe it was the week that we talked about the show Hamilton in the first place. But this book helped me understand so much about Hamilton and about the history of the founders that not only helps me enjoy the cast album more when I listen to it, but it's just something that I think about all the time. This book, it's one of the best works of non- nonfiction that I've ever read, certainly one of the best biographies I've ever read. And I think the perfect way to experience it, because it is such a brick of a book, is to listen to Scott Brick, the narrator, who I think understands the book just so completely. I don't know if he met a lot with Ron Chernow before he did this thirty-five hour and fifty-eight minute reading of this tome of history, but he just seems to to really get the nuances of the narrative and to be interested at every moment that he's talking about it. Um, so yeah, Ron Chernow is a wonderful writer. Scott Brick is a wonderful reader. And if you have some huge thing that's going to take a lot of time and you want something really smart in your ears, listen to Scott Brick read Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. Ooh, very cool. Wait, 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 wait. Dana, I, ha- I have to jump
5: in because I am listening to Scott Brick read The Great Influenza, the John Barry book that ah! we are spending time with over the summer. And as I Confluence. was listening... I was like, God, this guy has read me a book before. I'm like certain his exact like cadence with nonfiction. I like know that this guy has read me a book before. I wonder which of my books it is, but I hadn't had a chance to go back and look it up. And of course, as you're speaking, I was like, it must be, it must be the churn out because I listened to, I actually didn't listen to all of it, but I listened to. A bunch of it, and in fact, it is Scott Brick. So, if you like Scott Brick reading Hamilton, you'll love Scott Brick reading <laughs> the Great Influenza. Which so, I
1: so Scott Brick specializes in bricks. He only reads very large
5: books, right? <laughs> Brick, brickish, brickish history tomes. and and I will say, just his his same tenor that talks about the tempests and the Caribbean and the infighting and the and the Federalist Papers. Um, <laughs> my husband keeps walking in while I'm listening to it out loud, and it's like they shot all the dogs in the street. Like just some grim sentence or another. After um, you, you can't really pop in to the Great Influenza and find a lot of sprightly joy. There's <laughs> just not a lot of not like uplift. No pain, grief, and death. But anyway, Scott Brick does a lovely job
1: with it. You just convinced me. I've been reading The Great Influenza as a book book and I'm really enjoying it but I like sometimes with these big books to switch back and forth between listening and reading and so I'm going to download Scott Brick. I want Scott Brick in my ears 24-7. All
0: right, Julia, what what do you have?
1: I would like to endorse kind
5: of in the spirit of Steve's observation about Twister and the types of movies that were made in the 90s, the 90s movie Dave. Did you guys see Dave? Oh, sure. Dave is the movie in which Kevin Kline Kline, plays both a somewhat evil president and the hapless temp agency running do-gooder and impersonator who gets tapped to stand in for him when he has a stroke. It is a great movie. I mean, I think I first saw it like from video to go on VHS with my parents like a year after it came out and hadn't seen it in the decade since. And it really holds up and is just another one of those movies which is like no movie would get made now which was like here's the concept that's the pre- it's like wilson it's the president but he has a stroke and then it is you know this other guy is sort of running the government and what happens like how's about it um you know not based on anything and
0: anyway strong recommend dave
1: yeah ivan reitman good stuff classic 90s comedy
0: Kevin Klein, man, just one of those national treasures. Whenever you spot him, you're in for a good time in a movie. Um, All right. Well, I am endorsing. This is, in a way, a reendorsement. But it's new material by a favorite writer of mine, Anne Enright, wonderful Irish novelist, uh, author of The Gathering, which won the Booker, The Forgotten Waltz. Uh, the green road just an extraordinary writer uh to begin with but a fiction but also a wonderful non-fiction writer and reviewer and anytime you see her name in uh, the new york review of books or the lrb or any one of those tony precincts uh, you're in for a treat because she uh she's just she knows how to write with verve wit f- force, like a kind of implied moral force without cracking a sweat, which I think is what we all strive for. And, and so few of us get there. It's just, it's an amazing thing to witness. And she has an, uh, a review essay in the, I believe, latest New York Review of Books, and it has a wonderful title, Wanting Wrong. And it's a review of a couple of novels. And, and Anne Anne Wright is a somewhat older, I mean, older than I think the the women authors that she's writing about. I mean, Anna writes in her sixties, not especially old, but but she's not a twenty-five year old. She's not Sally Rooney. But I think she's witnessing the Sally Rooney moment and all of its sort of ancillary brands, um, with bemusement in the in the original sense of the word, right? She's she's not sure what to make of the fact that women are taking possession of not only their own stories and their own stories relative to their sexuality but the darkness of those stories in every sense I mean and she's just really exploring the idea of of like wanting wrong of like wanting something that you know might be bad for you and where that impulse might or might not come from and and writes she's just she's just brilliant on it and I love that it's also a tentative and ambivalent engagement with this developing genre by a writer who's written about women and women's desires from a different generational perspective. It's just a beautiful essay and I highly recommend it. Um, mm,
1: Love and write. I'm definitely going to find that.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page at slate.com slash culture Please email us. We love it at culturefest at slate.com. Interact with us on Twitter. We have a feed. It's at slate cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Dana Stevenson, and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Mecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Please stay safe and we will see you soon.